Well, friends, today we are in uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. We did not get a chance to finish up chapter 6 the last time we're together, so today we're going to jump into where we left off. So find your Bibles, please. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, we have some that are available for you, um, certainly, or as you saw, you can go on the app and we put the passage right there that we're looking at on a given day. Now the context of things, as you're turning, the context of things is this, that the temple, uh, excuse me, the wall of the city around Jerusalem, around that temple, has been rebuilt. And you may remember that it was a project that was over a hundred years in the making. That when the Babylonians came in, in 586 B.C., that they destroyed the temple and they destroyed the city walls around the city of Jerusalem. And that for over a hundred years, so from 586 B.C. to where we are in our Bible now and in the story that we're looking at now, 444 B.C., so that's what, hundred and almost 50 years that we're looking at. For 150 years, the walls of the city around Jerusalem they lay in ruin. And no doubt, during that time, people tried, people thought about trying to rebuild those walls, but for one reason or another, either the people could not rebuild the walls around the city or they would not rebuild the walls around the city. And so the city of Jerusalem itself lay in ruin for that 150 years. But notice, we learned this the last time we were together, chapter 6, verse 15, what people couldn't do in 100 years Nehemiah and the folks that he is with, they do so in 52 days. So you see that there, chapter 6, verse 15, the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. That's a miracle. And we discussed already the reason why this was able to happen. What couldn't happen for 100 years could happen in two months is because it said in the Scripture that the people had a mind to work and that the hand of our good Lord was upon us. And so God's hand blessed them as they put their, themselves to the task and the, the uh, walls of the city are rebuilt. And this was a great victory. And we looked again and again at all the different ways the enemy came against um, Nehemiah and the others, and they mocked them, and they challenged them, and they spread threats about them, and lies about them, and all these things. And it was a great victory that this wall was finally done, and that the gates were hung again. But... Here's the key thing that we're going to learn in this particular passage here that doesn't mean that the battle is over. You know, sometimes we have these great victories in our walk with the Lord and we, we encounter a circumstance and we come and we, we've had some success in that area and we think, great, I've made it. Now I can relax. Now I can take it easy. I don't have to be as diligent or as focused as I was before because we think because we had the victory that the battle is going to be over. But the reality is the battle is going to continue to come. And as we saw, or as we will see in our passage today, there is a continued need for diligence even after a victory has been won. So today in the last three verses of the chapter, I want to look at the latest scheme of the enemy before we move into the next chapter. So let me read those last three verses, starting in verse 17. It says, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Jehoanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and they reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, we've looked at Tobiah a number of times already in the book. Tobiah was the fellow that I likened to that little scrawny kid that tags along with the big disproportionate bully kid in elementary school or something like that. 
But in light of these verses, maybe that's not the best depiction of Tobiah. Because he's not just a little scrawny kid saying, yeah, what he said. But you see that he's actively engaged in this process as well. Now you recall that Sanballat, Tobiah, and some others in chapter 2, they first were disturbed that the Jews came back to the area and wanted to rebuild this. They didn't like it. They were bothered by it. They were angered by it. Nothing, no other reason than, oh, we don't want you guys here. Then we saw in chapter 4 that they begin to mock the work and the workers for what they're trying to do. Then we saw later in that chapter that they became angry that the work was progressing. In chapter 6, we see they try to lure, Tobiah amongst them, try to lure Nehemiah out into the wilderness where they intended to do him harm. And so these guys are very active, and Tobiah is very active as an enemy to the work of God. And here we see now in verse 17 and 19 that this guy is not just some little kid standing in the background saying, yeah, but rather he is a schemer and a conniver that is working very hard to infiltrate Nehemiah's inner circle. And so we look at verse 17, and the first thing that we take notice of there in that verse is the little spy network that Tobiah sets up, where he sends letters to the nobles, and the nobles are sending letters back to him. It says in the verse, moreover, in those days the nobles sent many letters to Tobiah. Hey, this is what's going on. This is what he said in that private meeting. I took good notes, and now you know what he said behind closed doors. And then notice also, Tobiah is sending letters back to them. Hey, do this, go this direction, ask him about that, find out some more information over here, and so on. And so, I can only imagine what the letters said. But inside information, it seems, is being passed from one to the other. And I also suspect that Tobiah is sort of craftily just sort of critiquing Nehemiah as well. He can't come out real strong, because then it'll be clear that he's against him. But just in a, a very careful way, subtle way, where he's coming out against Nehemiah, or he's questioning Nehemiah's loyalties, and he's getting, if you will, these nobles their loyalty to Nehemiah to be shaken a little bit here. Well, notice also verse 18. We also see that there is a very carefully crafted marriage union. That these, the key noble officials in one way or another, some reason, it causes them to be bound to Tobiah. So it says, For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Johan, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so they're bound by oath to him to them. They took an agreement with one another through this marriage union here. He's trying to get on the inside, as you can see. It's pretty crafty. And then look at verse 19. Verse 19, it tells us how Tobiah has the officials buttering up Nehemiah or speaking good words about him. Hey, when you see Nehemiah, tell him what a good guy I am. Tell him that I have nothing but good intentions. Tell him that he should give in to whatever we're looking for. And so it says, they spoke his good deeds in my presence. They repeated reported my words to him and Tobias sent me letters. And so I imagine they're saying, oh, come on, Tobias a great guy. Nehemiah, he's always been good, kind, and generous to us. You just, have, you just don't understand him. He's a great guy. Well, I don't know if they believe that or not, or if it's just because they had signed this agreement of some sort that they had to say nice things about Tobiah. So we don't necessarily know if they agree with him or not, but regardless of whether they think he's a good guy or not, Nehemiah knows the truth. And Nehemiah has seen through the guy's various schemes, and Nehemiah has discerned that the real intent of this guy is to uh, cause the work of God to be stopped, or to cause that whole plan of Nehemiah's to destruct here. And so everyone else may have thought this guy was wonderful, but Nehemiah knows that Tobiah is a man that can't be trusted. 
And that Tobiah was a man that was opposing the work of God. And since Tobiah was opposing the work of God, if Nehemiah was going to accomplish the work of God, then he would have to keep himself on guard against a guy like Tobiah, which is what he does. And so we have that here. Now there's one last point in this chapter that I want to draw your attention to. Look at the very last line of the chapter. It says, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. All right, Letters come in, they arrive in the mailbox. What does Nehemiah do with them? We don't know. It doesn't say what he does with them at all. And I think that speaks to us, that implies to us that he didn't do anything with those letters. That he kind of threw them off on the side or he filed them away in that little round circular basket you keep under your desk there and it's taken out once a week, whatever it may be. He doesn't respond to it. And the idea is this, he didn't feel a need to respond to it. He didn't feel a need that he had to defend himself or do anything like that. And it seems to me that Nehemiah is content to let these letters go and let God take care of these things. I don't know about you, but that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? You feel, you know what, I'm going to tell this guy what I'm thinking, or I want to just step up, or you know what, if word gets out, it's not going to be good, whatever. And we feel this need that we have to do this stuff for ourselves. And Nehemiah, though, he just leaves it to the Lord, because Nehemiah has far more things to occupy his time and his energy and his efforts than to deal with these threats that are coming against him designed to make him afraid. The most important thing Nehemiah has to deal with is leading the people of God. And so Nehemiah says, yeah, I'm not even going to get into it. Just throw it in the garbage. I don't even need to read it. And he puts it to the side here. The guy sent letters to make him afraid, and there's no response on the part of Nehemiah. Because, as I said, he has to lead the people. Now that brings us to chapter 7. So let me read the first four verses or so of this chapter. It says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, because he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Now there's four things I want to point out from those four verses. And so let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. Remember, in verses 1 and 2, it talks about the wall was built back up again, various people were put in place, and then it says, and I gave Hanani and Hananiah charge over Jerusalem. And it goes on to explain why he does that. And so the first thing that we notice here is what uh, Nehemiah does is voluntarily step away from his position of power. He voluntarily steps away from his position of power. Now you think about all that was accomplished in Jerusalem in these last two months and how Nehemiah was critical for all that to be accomplished. And the reason why the walls of the city were built essentially is so that Jerusalem can be the safe place and do what God intended for Jerusalem to do. And now that the walls are in place, Jerusalem can really go forward. It can begin to thrive again and accomplish all that it was meant to accomplish. And here is Nehemiah doing all of that hard work, getting it all ready, and then he walks away from it. And he turns it over to some other guys here. And I appreciate about this about him because Jerusalem wasn't about Nehemiah. It was about the Lord. And it was about the Lord and the Lord's glory. If Nehemiah wanted to build up some great reputation, 
if he wanted to go down in history as the guy that accomplished wonderful things in the city of Jerusalem, then he would have stayed in power. But that's not what Nehemiah is all about at all. It's not about him. And it's about the Lord. You know, following the American Revolution, General George Washington, he voluntarily approached the Continental Congress and he relinquished control of the armed forces. In response to that incredible act of selflessness, King George III of England is said to have declared, if he does this, then he will be the greatest man in all of the world. You see, the reason why that struck King George so much is because we have insight into King George's character. He would have never done it. Washington had given so much to secure his nation's freedom. And historically, we know he could have easily gone on to become the nation's first king. But like Nehemiah, George Washington laid it all down for the sake of the glorious cause. For George Washington, the glorious cause was a free republic. For Nehemiah, the cause was the glory of God. And for Nehemiah, this wasn't about building his own little kingdom. It wasn't about establishing his lasting legacy. What it was about for Nehemiah was accomplishing that which God had called him to accomplish and staying out of the way so that people could see God and ascribe to Him the glory and praise. Not to Nehemiah, but to God. That's what it was about for Nehemiah. And now that Nehemiah has found the right men for the job, he comfortably, confidently turns power over to them because he knows they're going to do the same thing as well. Not only are they going to lead well, but they're going to do so in a way that God is the one that is glorified and not man. And so he turns power over them, which brings us to the second point. This is also found in verse 2. Notice who he turns it over to. It says, I gave my brother Hanani. There's some debate as to whether that was a real brother or a brother in, in the faith or whatever it may be. But he gave his brother Hanani and also Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man, a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Now, Nehemiah, again, could confidently relinquish control of Jerusalem to these two guys because of the way that these two men had established themselves prior in their lives. And we talk a lot about, you know, I want to be the president. Well, then you better work hard to get there because no one's just going to give it to you. Or, you know, I want to be the head of that church. Yeah, well, then you better serve faithfully in those lower positions, whatever it may be. You, you see where I'm going? And I, I know you're not all here with me every single week, but we've kind of talked about these, these ideas here. You have to establish yourself faithful in the small things. And these guys here, they didn't look at being governor of Jerusalem, it probably wasn't even a goal in their minds. But they didn't do what they did saying, you know, someday I'm going to be the governor and then I'll really work hard and I'll be a good faithful servant. They did those things previously. And those things were taken notice of by the Lord and certainly here by Nehemiah. Let's remind ourselves a couple of things about these guys. Han and I, you may recall from the first or second chapter of the book, he was one of the men, the small group of men that made their way from Jerusalem all the way to Susa. That's 800 miles away. He made his way 800 miles away to seek out Nehemiah and inform him of the conditions in Jerusalem. And so we read that in Nehemiah chapter 1 in the opening verses. That tells us a few things about Nehemiah. The first thing it tells us about, excuse me, about Hanani. The first thing it tells us about Hanani is he was a perceptive man. He was a man that could kind of look around and he can see the circumstances that were there and say, you know what? The conditions that these people are facing is not good. That this is not the way that it should be, and this is not the way that God intended. That's the first thing. He's perceptive. But additionally to that, Hananiah doesn't just look around and see that you know, this isn't the way things should be, 
but he also is a visionary, which means he has the ability to see what the things could be. So he observes how things are bad, but he also knows how things can be better, how things can be good. And then the last character trait of Hananiah is this, his willingness to actually do something. He goes 800 miles to find Nehemiah and to speak to him. You see, lots of people can see the problem. A large number of people can see the solution. But few actually get up and go do something. And Hananiah is an example of a guy that takes the initiative to make things happen. And he demonstrates that again by going over 800 miles to persuade Nehemiah that the conditions of things in, in Jerusalem is not what God intended and that they could be better. But, and they're all very important. Certainly, I want a leader that can see the problem, be a visionary, actually get up and do something. But more important than any of those traits that can be said about Hananiah and Hananiah is the one that is said in verse 2. Notice how it ends. It says that he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. I don't know if that's speaking of Hananiah or Hananiah. It, um, it probably speaks of both of them in that particular instance. And those two, more faithful and God-fearing, they are the most important qualities anyone looking to serve the Lord and His people must have. So we know it's important to be educated. It's important to have experience. It's valuable to hone your skills and to develop your craft. But unless those things are joined with a heart that fears the Lord and faithfully serves the Lord, then you're never going to be greatly used for the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul addresses this in the New Testament. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he begins the statement by saying, moreover, it is required of stewards. That term moreover essentially is saying the most important things that is required of a steward, a manager, if you will, of a business, is that they be found trustworthy. And so the Apostle Paul makes the very clear statement that the most important character trait needed of a person that is seeking to serve the Lord and be used by the Lord is that they fear the Lord and they be found to be trustworthy. And that's exactly what we hear of these particular fellows here back in the book of Nehemiah. God can use a person, whether they are greatly gifted or not, if they fear the Lord. God can use a person, whether they are greatly gifted or not, if they fear the Lord and they can be trusted. And at the same time, there are many that are greatly gifted and they might have a brilliant mind or they're an excellent orator or something like that, but they will be frustrated in their attempt to serve the Lord due to a lack of character and faithfulness. And God can't bless that. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. What about that guy I heard about that had that big church and then we found out such and such was going on with that particular person? Well, the thing I would say to you is, yeah, you found about such and such that was going on with that particular person. You see, after a while, the Lord says, you know what? I've given you so much grace and so much mercy. And you were a hypocrite through this whole process. And it'll come out. And it always does come out. And it is always revealed. And then the work that that person had built up sadly goes through difficulties and struggles that God never intended for His church to go through. God can't bless that. God won't bless that. You know, sometimes we hear things like that and we think, well, maybe we should hide that from the world. Maybe we should hide that from the church. That that person was doing that and they were a hypocrite all along. And I would suggest this to you. The reason why we say maybe we should hide that is because we don't want the Lord's name to be embarrassed. Right? The Lord could care less about His name being embarrassed. He's not bothered by it at all. And He'll let it come out. And He'll let people be exposed for the sin that they're hiding hypocritically. And He'll just go on as He always has. And He'll raise up some nobody somewhere that believes Him, trusts Him, 
fears him to serve him. And he'll use that person. And hopefully that person will keep their eyes on the Lord and they'll keep walking in faithfulness. And the most important thing before any of this started, before getting up in front of someone or talking from some big church, whatever it may be, will be the intimacy of the relationship that they enjoyed with Jesus on day one of their walk with him. And the Lord doesn't need to protect his name. He's fine. And so, God is looking for a man that fears the Lord and a woman that can be trusted. And Hanani and Hananiah were two men like that. The Lord could trust them. Nehemiah takes notice of that. Obviously, he could trust them. And because he sees that in them, he comfortably hands power over to them. He gives them charge of the city. Again, it's not about Nehemiah, but it's about the work of the Lord and His glory. And he finds two men that can do that. Now, we also take notice in these verses his commitment, Nehemiah that is, to maintain diligence in guarding the city. Even though the walls of the city have been completed, even though the gates have been restored once again, Nehemiah continues to be diligent about protecting the city. And so look at verse 3. It says, He says strongly, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, then let them shut the bar and bar the doors. And appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. It's been said, it's ascribed to Thomas Jefferson, but it's been said that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And here you have these men and women here in Jerusalem. They had done so much to secure these walls. There was great personal and financial sacrifice to get to where they were on this particular day. They had many sleepless nights wondering if the enemy would come and attack them as they laid out there, not in their own homes, but they laid out there design, uh, ready to protect the city if someone came to attack. Their bones, no doubt, were aching and their muscles were fatigued. And for 52 days, these people had poured themselves into this particular building project so that the people of Jerusalem could one day again live a protected and secure life in a city that they would call their own. Now you remember, the walls provided them with separation. Separation from the world, but also separation unto the Lord. They were His holy chosen people. And the walls were essential, but the walls were not the end goal. The walls were designed to protect the end goal. And that, that is that they would be protected. And a tremendous victory had been won when the walls were rebuilt. But those walls weren't going to protect themselves. And you say, well, maybe they could. No. They couldn't because the same walls were destroyed 130 years later when Babylon came in. Those walls weren't going to protect themselves. Diligence on the walls is what was going to be required to ensure that the walls remained in place and that their purpose, separation from the world, separation unto God, could continue to be accomplished. And so knowing that, Nehemiah, he sets, as it says there in the verse, a guard upon the wall and a little bit later, it says that he gives instruction regarding the opening and closing of the city gates. And the point of that is this. Notice the instructions about the opening and closing of the city gates. It makes it very clear that it's supposed to be in the bright, shining light of the day. Don't do it at dawn, when some people still, their eyes are foggy or whatever. When the sun gets hot, let's say that's about noon. And he said, and keep the guard there until the gates are shut and locked. The idea is when... Everyone is closing down at 6. Nobody leave until everything is in place and we all look around and we give a nod and then you can go home for the day. So nothing is coming in and nothing is going out. It is going to be on guard 
um, from the time, leading, the time that those gates would be open. Now the point that I want to make is this. If nothing is coming in and nothing is going out unless the bright shining light of the day is on it, then I think there's an important principle for us that we can take for this. And again, it requires us to remind ourselves that the walls in so many ways, they speak to us in our lives of the walls that we put in place to protect us in our Christian walks. Because we know that there are things that God wants us to be set apart from and that He wants us to be set apart unto. Just like these particular guys here. And so we put walls up. Maybe we don't watch certain shows. Maybe we don't go certain places there. Why? Because we're legalist? No. That's not why we do it. We don't do it because we know, you know what, I don't need to be watching that. That's not good for my mind. It's not good for my heart. It's just going to take me down an avenue I don't want to be going down. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't read, I didn't read that book. Yeah. How come you didn't read it? Everybody's reading it. You know what? Here's what I find. If I read a book like that, this is what happens to me. So I'm not interested in reading that particular book. We set up these walls here. Now, here's the principle though. Sometimes in our walk, we allow, we have the walls form, but then we open the gates wide so that anything can come in and come out. Come in and come out. And so Nehemiah says here, nothing is coming into the city unless the bright shining light of the day is going to expose what comes into the city. And so I would ask this question. Are we comfortable letting that which we are bringing in to be exposed to the light? Or is it something or someone we would much rather enter in under the cover of darkness? Are we comfortable allowing what we are bringing in to be exposed to the light so that everybody can see it? All of our friends can take notice of it. Everybody else can observe it. There's no shame at all in the process. Because I would suggest this. If we inwardly hope that no one else will find out about this, that might be an indicator. It's probably an indicator that that's not something you should be allowing to enter in to your life. And so if you're hoping no one will know about that TV show you've been watching, or that book that you have been re reading, or that relationship that you have started, or whatever you want to fill in the blank with, if you're hoping that no one will know about it, then you need to be real careful about letting that enter into your life. Because that check in your spirit about that particular thing is likely the Lord saying to you, you need to be careful with this. This is the very reason we put the walls up in the first place. You need to be careful. The walls don't protect themselves. The walls need to be carefully monitored by the inhabitants of the city. Which is what we see Nehemiah being diligent to do. And now we come to the fourth point in these verses. And the fourth point that I want to draw your attention to from these opening verses will lead us actually to the remaining verses of the chapter. It's found in verse 4. And it says that the city was wide and the city was large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had yet been rebuilt. Now for the last six chapters, we have seen sort of a, a laser-like intensity to get this wall rebuilt. And when we were studying the book of Ezra, we saw a similar intensity to get the temple rebuilt. So the temple is up and going, the walls and the gates are now in place, but the homes and the buildings within the city, maybe not every one of them, but the majority of them, they now need the attention of the would-be inhabitants of that city. And so you have 50 plus thousand that have returned in the various waves um, to Jerusalem here. And they've returned to Jerusalem, but they're not living in Jerusalem. 
Likely some are, but the vast majority are going out into sort of the wilderness and almost like a tent living, if you will, for the time being. And so what we see Nehemiah doing, Nehemiah, he attacks the problem. The problem is all the houses are fallen down. He attacks the problem, as he does other places in, in this book here, by fully first assessing the problem. So you remember back in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah comes to the city of Jerusalem. He's there for a day or whatever it might be, a week or a little bit of time. And then one night, in the middle of the night, it tells us that Nehemiah gets up pretty much by himself, brings a couple of assistants with him. I imagine that one of the guys had a notebook. And very quietly, they made their way around the city. And Nehemiah just spoke to his assistant. He said, hey, jot a note down about this. Would you mark down over here that this gate needs to be repaired? Would you mark over here that three courses are down and we need to put 11 over here? And so on. And they're just jotting down. They're assessing the problem as they inspect the wall. Well, in many ways, that's exactly what Nehemiah is going to do in this particular chapter as well. He's assessing the problem. And he does so by taking a census. He orders a census of the returning exiles. The number of them and where they're at. Where these folks are living. So, who are the people that are here? He's answering that question. What family are they from? Their family line, their lineage. And where are they currently residing? And so we look in verse 5. It says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the, no- excuse me, the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it. And then it goes on to say what was written in it. Now that book of genealogy, the word book there is more properly translated scroll. Um, anybody here use a scroll these days? None of you really do. So what our English translators have done is whenever they see the word uh, scroll, they just put it as book. And you'll figure it out because you know, that's the context of, of the society we live in. Um, but this wasn't actually a book. This was more of like a page. As a matter of fact, Ezra chapter 2 is what Nehemiah gathers up here to read. And in Ezra chapter 2, you have this long listing of the exiles that returned from Jerusalem here. And maybe it was written on a scroll of some form, a smaller one there. But Nehemiah says, you know what, go get that for me. And they begin to look at it. They open it up there. So it's the article or it's the chapter that we have. We call it Ezra chapter 2. And Ezra chapter 2 was written over almost 150 years earlier, but over 100 years earlier. And if you look at Ezra 2, can't imagine anybody doing this, and Nehemiah chapter 7, and you carefully read through each of them, you will find they are virtually exactly, essentially exactly the same. There are some minor variations in them, and you'd expect that over 125 years, as certain people die off and others rise up, or as name variations come into place, whatever it may be. But you have this document that is written twice in our Bibles here. And I picture the scene that Nehemiah has going on here Something like this. I picture Nehemiah laying out that scroll with all of the names of the people. Ezra chapter 2. And it lists the names of each family head, of, uh, and the family heads. It lists the number of their descendants. And he lays it out sort of on a big long table, much like a general would lay out the map. And all of his people or whatever would come and they would look at the map and they would decide their plan of attack. So here laying out on the table is this long list of names. And I imagine also that he has a couple of maps that are up on the wall. One is Jerusalem today. One is Jerusalem back then when Ezra wrote it. And he's got all these people gathered in this particular room. And the genealogy scroll is open and lying on the table. 
And the existing map of Jerusalem here, the old map of Jerusalem there. And then verse by verse, he begins to go through the list. And he says, all right, gentlemen, let's start. Verse 8 reads, the sons of Parash, 2,172. He says, all right, tell me, what's their status? Somebody go up on the map there of old Jerusalem. Show me where they were settled in that particular time. And a guy goes up there and he says, we have it shaded in pink here. This is where the sons of Parash were. And he says, great, that's where they... And he says, now somebody go over there to the new map. And where are they at now? And, you know, this one's over here, this one's down here. He says, how come they're in a different place? He said, well, sir, that particular area, all the homes are destroyed, so they can't live there. And he said, all right, jot that note down. We have to rebuild that area so the sons of Parash can get back to where they need to get back to. And they said, all right, great. Then he says, great, who's next? And he said, well, verse 9, sir, the sons of Shephatiah, 372. And Nehemiah says, all right, let's do it again. Where are they currently settled? Where did their relatives live? And so on. And they go family by family by family, making their way through this long listing of names, and they allow Nehemiah and the nobles to fully assess the situation that is in front of them. Which homes need to be rebuilt? How quickly do they need to be rebuilt? And what kind of effort is it going to take to do so? And then they are going to move forward and plan the attack to the problem. And you know, I think there's nothing wrong. Sometimes we just want to jump in and do something. Well, somebody do something. And there's nothing wrong with just standing back, pulling back, and assessing the problem. And sort of taking a deep breath and figuring some things out. And it seems to me that's what these guys are doing here. Now, as we move on to what? Verse 7 or so, verse 6 and 7, we come to a long listing of names. Now, no doubt, when you read your Bible and you come to a long listing of names, you think, great. This is going to be a short devotional time because I'm not reading it. I'm skimming through and I can tell everybody I read a chapter in my Bible. You have to ask yourself, I, I'm sure I, I do, I ask myself, why exactly the Lord chose to list all of these names in His Holy Word? And then I ask myself even further, not only that, why did He choose to do it twice? Okay, I can understand once, I can get through it once, but why did He choose to do it twice? And may I suggest to you that Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7 are designed to be an encouragement for the Lord, from the Lord, for each of us. And the fact that he does it twice means he really wants to encourage us. Does anybody think I'm on the right track? Come on, you're liars. You're thinking, That's not about encouragement. No, here's why I think it's encouragement. Because what Ezra 2 and Nehemiah tell us is this, that the Lord sees and that the Lord takes notice. That's what these chapters do. They tell us that the Lord sees and the, Lord's ta the Lord takes notice. Remember, this isn't just a listing of 50,000 random people that are living in Jerusalem. But these 50,000 people, around that number, these 50,000 50, people are pioneering souls. These are people that said, you know what, if the Lord is in it, then I want to be in it. When do we leave? They're pioneering souls. Remember, of the Jewish population that was in captivity, and again, you think, well, if they're in captivity, everybody's going to want to leave. If you're in jail and the gates are wide open and everyone's running out, you're thinking, I'm going too, or whatever, and everyone's going to leave captivity. But that wasn't the case with the Babylonian captivity. These guys, yeah, they were captives, but they were living good, comfortable lives. They had their own homes. They had their own businesses. They were raising their kids and sending them off to school. They had things settled. They were, they were fine there. As long as they didn't mind being a captive, then they were fine being in that particular place here. And it was only 2% of the... I'm spitting all over the place. I'm getting excited. It was only 2% of the population 
that said, if God's in it, I want to be in it too. When do we leave? And they were leaving a place that was settled and established to go to a place that lay in ruin for a hundred years. But they said, I want to go there. And I want to be in that particular place. So where most of the people were saying, why would anyone want to go back to Jerusalem? These guys instead were saying, why wouldn't anyone want to go back to Jerusalem? These were men of faith. They were women of faith. And the Lord takes notice of it and He mentions it in His holy word twice. Isn't that awesome? Now you're never going to get your name in the Bible. I'm sorry. Unless you know somebody carves it on the front cover or whatever and they give you a nice fancy Bible. But you're never going to get your name on the inside pages of the Bible. But I can encourage you with this. Though we will never have our names written in Holy Scripture, the Scripture does say that as He did with these brave pioneers, that the Lord will take notice of the courageous steps of faith that you take as well. And we read this great verse in Malachi chapter 3. It says this in verse 16, Then those that feared the Lord, they spoke with one another, and the Lord took notice. It says the Lord paid attention, and He heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before Him. That seems to imply it's in heaven. And He has an assistant, and He said, do me a favor. Write down Denise's name. That's pretty awesome. And, all right, how do you spell the last name? It's kind of a hard one, Lord. And the angel writes down that name there. A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And so the encouragement then for us from these two chapters, keep serving the Lord faithfully because the Lord sees and the Lord takes notice. Amen to that? We're not done though. Let's continue. Now, the list. The list of the names. The list of these men and their families that stepped out, the guys and gals that abandoned everything they knew for the sake of the call, it starts in verse 6. It says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town, and they came with Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Nehemiah and Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvai, Nahum, and Bena. And again, I'm not going to read through the long list of names. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. I'll let you do that on your own. But I do want to draw your attention to a few points that are scattered throughout the genealogy. And the first is this. That in addition to the many people that are coming back, there are some that are coming back with specific roles as well. And so the first people that you see where that's described is verse 39. So you look at verse 39, it says, And the priest... And then it goes on and it lists the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, and so on. And so starting there in verse 39, included in the list of returning exiles are those who would serve as priests. If you look at verse 43, we see the Levites. explains there. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely Kadmael and others. And we know that the job of the Levites was to assist the priest in the performance of their duties. Then you look down in verse 46, and it speaks of a group of people that are called the temple servants. Well, the Levites assist the priest. The temple servants assist the Levites. And we have a long list of what those particular folks do, or who they are, I should say. And so you have all of these guys. You have the priest, you have the Levites, you have the temple servants, and they all go forward. And each one of them, despite their name, their title, each one of them, in one way or another, is a temple servant. And they're going back to Jerusalem as temple servants despite the fact that there is no 
temple. And there hadn't been a temple for a hundred and some years. And yet these guys go back to serve in that temple. So they go back to Jerusalem. Hey man, how would you like to come in the, the temple? The temple, great. When did they rebuild it? Oh, well, they haven't. It hasn't been. So you're offering me a job for a business that isn't actually there. Yeah, that's what we're doing. It's going to be great. And you're going to do really well. These guys went out in faith based on a promise that God would do what He said He would do. Which is what all great men and women of faith have done throughout the Scripture and throughout the history of the annals of the church. And it's what you and I must do as well. We need to be a people that go out in faith. And so we read in the book of Hebrews, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I don't think that verse just speaks of the idea of possessing faith. I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but I think it's walking in faith. And you want to live a life that you're going to be a life that is pleasing to God. When you come to the end of it, and you're on those dying days of your life, and you look back and you say, you know what, the life that I lived was pleasing to the Lord. And I fully expect when I enter into His kingdom that I'm going to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And I would imagine that should really be the goal of every one of our lives, shouldn't it? Because that's the only certain thing. I don't know what the rest of your life is going to hold, but I can tell you this, at the end of it, you're going to enter into the kingdom of God and you're going to stand before God. That I can say for certain for every single one of us. And when we come to the end of our days and we stand before a holy God to know that we're going to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant, well, that causes me to go forth with great confidence into my dying day. And the secret to that is not just possessing faith, but stepping out in faith. Walking in faith. Because unless we step out in faith and walk in faith, it's impossible for us to please, please God. You want to please the Lord? Then walk in faith. Step out as God leads. And trust Him to do what He says He's going to do. We also read in the book of Hebrews this. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the people of old received their commendation. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Like a temple that hasn't been built for a hundred years, but somebody promised me that it would be. It's stepping out in faith, believing that God's going to do what God is going to do. It is, by it, he says, the people of old receive their commendation. Now, I don't think it's a good practice to add to the Scripture, but I think in this case, we can add to the Scripture in addition to saying, and by it, the people of old receive their commendation, we can also add, by it, the people of new will receive their commendation as well. God will commend us based on our faith and walking out in that faith, stepping out in that faith. And so these temple servants of various kinds, they go out to serve in a yet-to-be-built temple, and they do so by faith. And that's the kind of faith that the Lord desires for each of us to have. That we would seek His will, and then we would step out in faith and obedience whenever He leads us. And again, as I said, I'll let you read the long list of names of men and women that have done that, but in the meantime, skip down to verse 66. It says, Now the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom were another 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. That's quite a choir. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. And for your notes, their donkeys were 6,720. In case you're keeping track. 70 says, Now some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold. 
50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 darics of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 darics of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. Now verse 73, So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now, you can take notice of that, the seventh month, because that's going to lead us to our study next week, which takes place in the seventh month. And it's a really exciting chapter. At least it was a chapter that excited me, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with you some things from the chapter. But that brings us to the end of our study today. And I, I would suggest to you that the purpose of our study, what the Lord might have for us, and perhaps He has something unique for you, but that the, what the Lord might have for us collectively is this, is that we would be a people that are encouraged based on what we considered today. Encouraged in the reality of the fact that the Lord sees and that the Lord takes notice of your faithfulness. And because of that, that we would take courage and we would step out more frequently as the Lord leads. Because the Lord blesses that sort of faith. And that sort of faith that takes courage to step out as He guides, that's the sort of faith that has been possessed by all the great men and women of the faith. And it's the sort of faith that the Lord wants to see for you as well. Can you agree with that? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this reminder from Your Word, Lord. And, and Lord, You know, sometimes we have good days, sometimes we have bad days. Sometimes we're stepping out and we're excited to do so. Other times we're tired and frustrated and fatigued. And Lord, You're just so gracious to give us reminders when we need them to keep on running the race, fixing our eyes on heaven. And Lord, we thank You for the faithful testimony of these uh, men and women that are listed for us, these families that came forward back to Jerusalem. We thank You for that pioneering work, Lord. And we pray that we would have a similar heart. Lord, every generation that comes and goes here on the earth has a great task before it. And that is to reach the generation. And so, Lord, our desire is, Lord, our, it's a humble desire, but we believe it's from You, is to reach those that are around us. Lord, to be walking in such a way that people see Jesus and are drawn to Him. Lord, that when people come and they inquire as to the reason for the hope that we have within us, that we would be able to point they themselves to Jesus. The washing and cleansing that comes from faith in the finished work on the cross, Lord. The victory that is ours proven by the fact that there's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. Lord, I pray that in the smallest of details in our walk with You, that we would be in tune with You. Lord, that we'd be hearing Your voice and walking in Your ways. Lord, that when we're fearful, that we would step out in faith. Lord, that we would be more interested in being where God is and what God is doing than what is comfortable and convenient. So Lord, fill us, Lord, with faith and give us the courage to step out in it, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.